We're busy with a series on values and speaking about some of the values that we as a, as a church carry and it's, it's difficult to assess the value I want to speak about today. It's one of those things which I believe only eternity will reveal and uh, that's the value of evangelism or discipleship. Uh, I combine evangelism and discipleship together because it's uh, the work isn't finished when you preach the gospel to someone. You need to work with those who respond to the gospel. Those who become believers need to be gathered and they need to be fed and they need to grow and be discipled. And I want to look at that value from the Word of God this morning and talk about how we as a church appropriate it in this community, how we, how we work. And, uh, and I want to also keep you free in this sphere because I think there are a lot of different approaches to evangelism and I'm, I'm not someone who believes in one right formula. I think that very often in life God gives you a broad space and He says go into that land and possess it. He doesn't tell you which corner to start with, He doesn't tell you which direction to, to go always. Sometimes He just says you choose. I will support you wherever your foot will tread i'll give to you he doesn't say i'm going to tell you go and stand here he says go by faith and i'll come alongside you and, and bring the power let's pray heavenly father as we turn to your word this morning we ask that your holy spirit would guide us and speak to us feed us and instruct us in jesus name amen so this is a core value we could use catchy phrases like uh, church on mission with Jesus or we exist to know God and make him known and those would be true. I mean there's nothing wrong with having some phrase to encapsulate a value like our purpose is to know God and make him known or we're on mission with Jesus. Those are good things and we have to understand though where did that idea come from? It comes straight out of the word of God. Most of us um, when we hear the expression, the Great Commission, if you've been a believer for a while, you'll, you'll think of Matthew 28. I'll read it. Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20 says, And Jesus came to and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's a well-known three verses in the Bible. It's Jesus giving a commission to his disciples right before he, he leaves after the resurrection. He's basically having some parting words, and that's kind of how Matthew closes his account of, of the gospel. And what you see there we call the Great Commission, but actually the term Great Commission is just invented sometime probably around the 17th century. They didn't need uh, it before, they just knew we have to get on with the work, and they did. So sometimes I think we comfort ourselves by speaking about things with an expression that becomes jargon, it's like Christianese, the Great Commission. But it's not good enough to have an expression if you don't live it out in some way. And this verse, you know, when you hear the term, the Great Commission, you comfort yourself that you know Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20, off by heart probably, if you've been a believer for a while. That's not good enough. It's not good enough to know a verse in the Bible if you don't do anything. And so, we have to grapple with this verse and many others that I'm going to read today. 
And one question we have to ask about this, this commission is, does it apply to all believers? Does it apply to all believers or just the original 11 disciples? You know, Jesus had these guys around him, so maybe he just said to them, not, you know, it's just historical. Is it just descriptive or is it imperative and prescriptive to every believer? And if it is an imperative, if it is prescriptive to every believer, then it would mean that the, the Keith Green song, Jesus commands us to go, is true. The question you have to ask is, did Jesus command you to go in this, these verses? And I believe it's not difficult to show that this is in fact the case. It is in fact the case. One can see even from the last words quoted in this passage that the application extends beyond the original hearers because he says, Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. But those 11 disciples, they only just had a little burp in eternity. Their whole lives were just a breath. They weren't the 2,000 years that Jesus has been with us since he spoke those words. And so the application of I'm with you to the end of the age means that Jesus' words were expected to propagate to the next generation and the next generation of believer. There is more weight though to the argument that every believer should be concerned with evangelism than just those verses. Matthew is telling us in a very succinct way what Jesus said we must do. So for the last time I'm going to read it. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's the imperative part of Jesus' command. He says, go, preach, baptize, teach. It's, it's get the proclamation of the gospel out, get people in, teach them, disciple them, raise them up to maturity. Now, not many people who become believers are called to quit their jobs and hit the road as a traveling salesman for the gospel. Uh, I, I don't know about you, but when I became a believer, I had no call in my life to leave the marketplace and uh, go, I don't know, to a monastery or go into full-time ministry and become weird. Um, in other words, like one of those guys that's given everything for Jesus. These are the ideas we have in our mind that you can only give everything for Jesus if you quit your job and hit the road and just go everywhere telling people about Jesus. Actually, God doesn't usually call people to do that. Some people have been called to leave from their nation and go to a foreign nation and preach to a strange people. Hey, Aina. <laughs> he did, yeah. He says he's been to South Africa and he's preached to them. Um, those strange people, those foreigners. You couldn't walk around saying bazaar, hey. Because um, you were you were the bazaar, yeah. Man, I love it. I, I want to get more Malagasy to South Africa so that they can feel like, you know, outsiders. And um, the thing is, sometimes when God calls you, He doesn't tell you that you have to quit your job. See, sometimes when God raises someone up 
and there's a default normal, it's actually the healthy normal. It's the pattern of God. For example, for most people, we want to get married. We want to grow up, we want to get married, we want to have a family. And, and it doesn't always work out smoothly. Sometimes it's not great at all. But the idea for humanity is generally, there are very few people who are called to celibacy. I don't know if I've ever met someone, maybe I have, but for the most part, people are not called to celibacy. That's like an abnormal or exceptional calling. And you would need a special grace for it because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, I think it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So most of us, when we're like late teenagers onto early adulthood, we're just burning with passion the whole time. And God says, well, for that desire, there's marriage. And you're not called to celibacy in that case. You should find a spouse and get married. So that idea is there's a normal. Why am I telling you this? Because I think there is a normal for most believers, and that is to continue doing normal life, which includes working, get a job, work hard for the glory of God, earn money. It's very important, earn money. It's part of what God calls a human being to do. It's noble, it's good. Work is a holy thing before God. And so God expects most people to have some kind of a career, to have some kind of a labor where they work and that they would generate some kind of an income. And there's a number of scriptures that support these ideas quite clearly saying that you should work hard with your hands so you can be a blessing to others. I'm telling you all of this in the context of the topic evangelism because we create a dichotomy or a split, a separation between this idea of evangelism and normal life. And we think that we can only be evangelistic if we're somehow commissioned into a special calling like being a missionary or a pastor or a full-time, I don't know, drifter. Somebody who just goes from, you know, neighborhood to neighborhood preaching the gospel. That, that's not normal. Normal for most of us is that we would hold this value 100% dear as part of Jesus' commission to our lives, and then we would figure out how to live it out in a normal life. In the life of someone who has a normal job and a, maybe a normal family. And, and it's quite a fascinating thing because there's a time when a young person becomes profoundly restless. And if you're a believer and you're a young person, you start to think about the great things you must do for Jesus. And you think maybe you have to become so radical that you don't have a normal job and you get distracted into a ministry ambition to go and do something for Jesus and it's not even what He wants for you. He wants you to actually study, qualify and find a job and all that time shine for Him. Yeah. And all that time be in love with Him. The amazing thing is when I was a young man, I'd been saved for some years and I grappled with those issues and I thought, God, what am I supposed to do? to make you famous. I wanted to be radical. I wanted to hit the streets. And, and, and then I just felt like God said, actually, you need to keep a steady job. And you don't get to be a pastor paid for by the church. You get to be boring. It wasn't, it wasn't boring, but that's how we sometimes perceive it. Like spiritually, is it less for me to do IT than for me to stand in a pulpit on a Sunday and preach. 
And I can tell you for sure that I don't believe now that I am one bit more evangelistic as a full-time pastor than I was as a student or I was as an IT employee in a company. The idea of the value of evangelism is either you cultivate it because you love Jesus or you're looking at a, a, some kind of a deception that says I have to be something before I can do this. Yeah. I have to be somebody else before I can be evangelistic. Even whatever Timothy was doing, Paul said to him, do the work of an evangelist. He's not an evangelist, as in an Ephesians 4 ministry office, but he's got to do the work of evangelism. And when Jesus spoke this commission, he wasn't saying, it's going to be the missionaries and the pastors and the youth with the mission that do that mission. No, he's saying if you're a believer, this is something that the kingdom is about. It's actually the core of what the kingdom is about. Jesus commissioned his disciples and he commissions us because we're on a mission with him, all of us. So Luke tells us some more. Matthew tells us the what, the command, but Luke actually tells us some more of the why and the how. So we're going to look at some of the stuff in Luke now. So now you have to think about this concerns all of us, whether you're a student or a mom or a teacher or a doctor or whatever Jesus has called you to. You're to do the work of an evangelist like Timothy. You're to value evangelism and find out how it works. So here Luke gives us more details from Luke 4 verse 16 to 21. I'm going to read. Jesus came to Nazareth and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's a, a very key passage that Luke is referring to from Isaiah 61. And what Luke does in his gospel is he begins to tie Jesus' mission to the fulfillment of Old Testament promises, prophecies, and everything in the Old Testament. And so Luke takes the time to tell us about Jesus and how Jesus describes his mission. And Jesus says, I'm coming as a fulfillment of God's plan to send the gospel. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news, that's the gospel, to the poor. Now this isn't a, a social gospel. These verses could easily read like that. If you quickly read them, you think, oh, you know, the poor means those who are materially poor. But it's not what's going on here, because if that were the case, if it didn't mean to the humble, but meant to the poor, we could also say that, you know, recovery of sight to the blind, what if you lame? That's not fair. Jesus is only coming to give blind eyes sight. He's not coming to make lame walk in this prophecy. That's pretty bad deal. So actually this, this is not to be seen as blind people only benefit. 
It's everyone is blind and everyone benefits. Everyone who is poor, meaning anyone who is humble enough to believe the gospel will benefit from the gospel. So it's good news to the poor and that word literally does mean the lowly, meaning the humble. Proclaim liberty to the captives. The word liberty there actually has a, 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 a link to, to forgiveness, to purity. And so the liberty, you might not realize that you are the captive, but everyone is captive to sin, enslaved to their sinful nature, bound up and unable to be set free from the penalty and the power and the, and the sin has them enslaved. And Jesus says, I'm the one who's going to bring liberty. That's what he's proclaiming. Recovering of sight to the blind. In other words, opening of your eyes to your condition before God of being spiritually blind, yeah. unable to see the light or know the light. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. So to bring this healing to, to humanity and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So it's under this general banner, which is an era in which we live, a season of favor. What does that mean? It's before God brings his final judgment. And so Jesus has effectively come as the emissary of the kingdom of God, as God himself, but acting as his own ambassador, he comes and he says, I'm announcing that you can have amnesty. If you turn to me, you can be forgiven and then you won't be judged and punished in the coming judgment and punishment. And so Jesus sits down at that point and says, it's this today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing, meaning with his arrival on the scene, Jesus is coming to proclaim this good news. In the actual verse which I've mentioned before, Isaiah 61 verse 2, it reads to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Directly goes from the first advent of Jesus, the year of the Lord's favor, to the second advent of Jesus when he comes again to declare the vengeance of God against sin. So we are now in the first part, that this is the year of the Lord's favor, which means that there is a time for you to make peace with God, and there is a way for you to make peace with God. The time is now, and the way is Jesus. Yeah. And that's what Jesus is saying, and until He comes again, the door is open for reconciliation with God. God is acting as a friend towards His enemies. But the day will come where God becomes the enemy to His enemy, when He brings judgment against all those who are still against him so we're living between the now and the not yet in the church age in the last days and we remain as people we remain to carry the evangel the message so the evangel was the 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 the, the, the announcement and the evangelist was the herald the one that makes the announcement that proclaims this piece of news that is coming and this news that has come is the good news and we are now those who are the heralds like Jesus came to announce it. So what Luke is showing us is how Jesus connected his mission to the Old Testament promises of God and the law and the prophets spoke concerning him. And we see this theme continue through Luke and I'm going to jump right to the end now of Luke. After the resurrection, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus meets and helps some of his disciples. See, this is right after they've seen Jesus crucified. It's been three days and he's been dead. 
And the disciples don't realize that there is still something happening, that there's a mission that's continuing. And so Jesus walks with them. They're confused by his death. They don't realize that he's risen. So it's the right time for this message because it's just after Easter. I didn't even plan that. And we pick up with the place where Jesus, unrecognized by his disciples, starts chatting with them on the road. So I'm going to read from Luke 24, verse 13. Luke 24, verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. That's Jesus who had been crucified. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Something supernatural is happening. Jesus is alive. They think he's dead. He's walking with them. They don't recognize him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened these, in these days? It's like, where were you? Because if you don't know the story, what just happened? And he said to them, what things? Playing dumb, omniscient God. <laughs> and they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people. See, their perceptions aren't developed enough yet. They're seeing Jesus as a prophet. He's not. He's a risen Savior. He's God come back from the grave. Wow. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning and they did not find his body. They came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said. But him they did not see. So they're like, can we really believe this? We've heard rumors now that Jesus is alive. Apparently angels spoke to women, but women not very reliable source of info. Good source of gossip. Can we trust it? We don't know. Could just be more stories. And he said to them, oh foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Man, talk about amazing stuff happening. So just when they realize who he is, he's out of there. He's like, now I'm going to show you that I'm really no longer just the Jesus you knew as a man walking on earth, but that there's a supernatural risen God who's alive forevermore, and he is spirit, but he took on flesh, and his flesh is subject to the purposes of God, so it can just disappear if necessary. I, I, 
no, this stuff is amazing. It's true though. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven. See, this is like another, they're running back now. It's like late already. They said to Jesus, stop, we need, it's getting dark. We have to go eat. Jesus breaks bread. They recognize him, maybe like this act of communion, like Passover. Suddenly they see him and he disappears. And then they go all the way back to tell the people this is happening. They found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, The Lord has indeed, has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. So he just appears now again. But this is not just a ghost. Bible is not a ghost story. They were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And then he, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. I guess later some of those guys went and colonized England. Anyway. <laughs> and he took it and ate before them. And he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This section in Luke is vital for you to get a hold of because it gives you the clear understanding that Jesus' mission continues with us. That the fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies and promises comes through the proclamation of the gospel through the church. That's clear when he says it's written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So there he's giving this commission again, but saying that this is part of how the prophecies and promises of the Old Testament are going to be fulfilled. So did you know, you sitting here today as a believer, are called into being part of the fulfillment of the prophecies and the promises of the Old Testament through the proclamation of the good news in Jesus' name, repentance and forgiveness. So that tells you what you're supposed to do and why are you doing it? Why are you evangelizing? Because Jesus started it, but you get to continue it. How do you do it? You proclaim repentance and forgiveness in Him and you're doing this in fulfillment of God's plans to bring blessing to the nations, the Abrahamic covenant, 
God saying, all nations will be blessed through your seed to Abraham. So the gospel is no longer just for the Jews. It starts in Jerusalem, but it spreads out to the ends of the earth. And you and I have our share in that. That is the Great Commission. That is, that is a powerful picture of the Great Commission. And you and I are actually part of bringing about the fulfillment of God's promises to the nations. What an honor. What an honor. I mean, to be able to join into what Jesus was doing. As part of what Jesus started, he began, but we actually complete. And that's the preaching of the gospel till the very last years have heard it. Till the ingathering of the nations is complete and then Jesus will come back. And there are those appointed for salvation who must hear because hearing is the means that they, their faith is ignited. Faith comes by hearing. They hear the gospel, they respond because God's planned this. So you and I get to be part of the fulfillment of God's promises and prophecies to the nations by proclaiming this gospel. He didn't say you have to go to Bible school. If God encourages you to go to Bible school, go. But if God never gives you that opportunity, it doesn't disqualify you at all. Yeah. He said, tarry in Jerusalem until you receive power. When my Spirit, when the promised Holy Spirit is poured out upon you, Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was given. It was the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. That's how Peter described it to the people at, at, in Jerusalem. He said, this is what Joel spoke of, where God will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Not on those who were ordained, just them. Not on those who went to get a degree in some seminary. No, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And so there's this idea that God's going to empower everyone for this mission. He's going to empower you and me, my children if they're believers, and their children if Jesus tarries. He's going to give his spirit to us so that we can have some kind of a sense of empowering, confidence, boldness, conviction, knowledge that God is with us. And Luke continues the story in his second book, which is Acts. I'm going to just read a few more verses from Acts. In the first book, O Theophilus, this is from Acts 1 verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends to the end of the earth. That's not sequential necessarily to us now. We don't have to start, you know, only here and then not get there you can get on the airplane and you can take the gospel to the ends of the earth but the point jesus was making there was that 
it is going to begin when you're empowered by the Spirit and it's going to spread to the end of the earth. And this is part of how you proclaim the gospel. So as you sit here and you think about how do I join into this mission of Jesus to become somebody who proclaims this gospel and helps bring the fulfillment of God's promises to the nations, how do I do that? I say you don't do it based on your academic qualification. You don't do it based on your skillful words. You don't do it based on like how big and strong you are. You do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. You say, God, I need your Holy Spirit today so I can be your witness. I want to be a faithful witness. How, how simple a child is. They get enthusiastic about something. Be like that about Jesus. Say like Jesus is the good news in your life. He's the one that took away your sins. And then that just like, wow, i got to tell my friend about Jesus. How will I? I don't know. I have to. I just have to say something to someone about Jesus this week. Just tell somebody you see. You won't believe it. Jesus can take away your sins. He took away my sins. I've had such peace since I met him. I've known that I'm forgiven. You can be forgiven if you ask Jesus for forgiveness. What must I do? Turn away from your sin. Turn away from the things that don't please God. But how will I do it? He'll give you power like He gave me power. He gives you grace. He gives you His Holy Spirit. He gives you His presence. He comes alongside you and He helps you. See, even the power of our sanctification is Christ. Yeah. So when we preach to people, we, when they say, but how will I stop sinning? You don't worry, God will help you. Yeah. How can I turn to Him? It's easy, just turn. And so you, you love Jesus and you tell someone about Jesus. And then you, you walk together. So Jesus' death and resurrection and our gospel proclamation fulfill the scriptures. In practical terms, as a church, you could ask, how do we do this? Often people want to know what are the church programs. Have you got like a ministry to there or there or there? None of that is what the early church was experiencing. What the early church was experiencing was a conviction that they carried a message because they knew their Savior. And so we as a church hold this value of the priesthood of all believers. It's another value I still have to teach on. But the idea is that every one of us is called by Jesus to fulfill His purposes with our lives. That there isn't a separation between clergy and laity. That I am just one of you and we are just the family of God, the household of God, the people of God, the priesthood, the royal priesthood, being built up into a holy temple for His glory. We're one body with many parts and they're all there to bring glory to Jesus. And so when it comes to the idea of the church, doing the work, I say we are the church and we do the work. And you don't need to come to the elders and say, what is your evangelism program? We don't have one. You are it. You are my evangelism program as a pastor. I cannot go to your office and someone else's classroom and barge in there. If you're a school teacher, why must I stand there? I'm not authorized. But you have authority. You have Jesus in your heart. You walk on the road with Jesus and let Him reveal that to you. 
and you'll open your eyes and you'll say, wow, it's me. I'm the one who's got to come and bring the gospel to the nations. So we hold this value of evangelism as a church that we would proclaim. You know that in this church, I've had people who are not deacons, not elders, not appointed in any office, get in the pool or get in the lake and do the baptism. Why? Because I want you to know that you can make disciples, that you can baptize someone, that you can tell them about Jesus, that you can take them to the water, that you can baptize them and you can disciple them. And if you say, but I, I, I don't know, I don't know how to do that. Well, talk around amongst one another and figure it out. It's possible. It doesn't require rocket science, as Gavin always used to say. You don't have to be a rocket scientist. And discipling. How do we disciple people? Discipleship primarily works the way that it works best the way that Jesus did it. It's by spending time together. Yes. And so I expect discipling to happen at the BOMA just a bit later. Where some of you are going to talk to someone else who's much younger in the Lord. And that person who's much younger in the Lord is going to say, but what about this? And then you are the one to answer. You don't need to go to the elder and say, what do, what do we believe about this? No, just read your Bible and then tell this person, this is how it works. Okay, some of the time you'll get it wrong and later you'll have to apologize like I have to about some wrong theology. But the idea is we so often abdicate what we could be doing for the kingdom because we think it's got to be professionalized, yes. it's got to be programmed, it's got to be expertise. And it's not true. You are able to disciple someone if you're passionate for Jesus and you're walking with Him. You can just take someone along in your journey. And so we've allowed people to baptize other believers because we see that happening in the Word of God. I believe that, other, that believers disciple believers and Paul's letters were written that way. It wasn't only the apostles that were instructing. It said young women or older women instruct the younger women and older men learn to be like this and instruct the younger men to manage their appetites and stuff. So it's like the people are involved with the people in the family of God. It's not necessarily programmed with a course. And so we don't run loads and loads of courses. We do sometimes do leaders training because ultimately we want everyone to be equipped and we want people to be leaders. But preaching on Sunday should feed you, and when you're fed, you should be able to share what's fed you. Share with others. And so I don't, I don't feel like we as a church have to create all kinds of frameworks and programs, although there is nothing wrong with good frameworks and programs. If you initiate a course and you run a program, I'm not going to judge you or condemn you for that. I think it's wonderful. But what I'm against is the idea that the church has to facilitate the vehicle when Jesus is actually wanting you to be the vehicle. The church must create a program when Jesus actually wants you to be the person, not the program to be the substitute. And so we are a priesthood and we raise up leaders. And I don't have time to get to this, but I believe firmly that the church is instrumental in evangelism and always will be because Jesus said in Matthew 16 verse 18, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So in the end, what we want is to see people who are born again, baptized, 
integrated into a local church community, matured there, discipled until they themselves are taking the gospel out and gathering people into the household and family and community of God. And so what we see through the rest of Acts and what Paul did in the New Testament went around planting churches because those were the things that represented on earth the advance of the kingdom of God which is invisible and in hearts. And so when you saw churches planted all over, you knew the gospel has gone there and the gospel is growing there. And that's the way we believe in evangelism ultimately is not no problem with a big crusade. But if you just do a big crusade and people aren't gathered into churches, into communities, into the family of God, if they aren't discipled ongoingly after the crusade, it becomes a tragedy. It becomes seed scattered on hard ground or where the birds came and stole it. And Africa is a testimony to that. Tons of crusades that have come and gone, very few lasting converts, plant churches and you see steady, slow growth, which multiplies and becomes massive. So, as a church, if you want to ask us, do we believe in evangelism? We do through personal, you are the evangelist, and through church planting, we form communities that are evangelistic communities. And those have to work together, otherwise it all fizzles out in the end. So we want evangelistic communities, meaning planted churches. And we as a church have done that from the time that I came in, nine, in 2009, we planted in Anala Kelly, Nalakeli has planted two more, and Nalakeli is going to plant again, and we're busy talking about future church plants in other areas of the city, and we've also brought in another couple of churches that we worked with, helped one church plant beyond that. So from one congregation having one meeting in 2009, God has multiplied what we're doing to the point that right now on a Sunday there's probably eight or nine church services happening in about six different locations. So... It's little, but it's the expression of this conviction. And we will plant more churches as God matures, more saints. Some of whom will come and say, I want to be that guy who goes and plants that church. Most will actually just have to work and be part of it, which is what God intends anyway. Won't you stand and the band can come up? Heavenly Father, as we've looked at this commission that Jesus gave, we see how it extends to our lives, Lord. We see how you've called us to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that you've commanded and taught, Jesus. Lord God, I pray that today you would help us to see that we are this, this team, we are the evangelistic plan of God, that we as your people are those who are meant to take your light and your name, declare it, shine and show forth our love for Jesus wherever we go. And so Lord, I pray for each one of us standing here, that in our inadequacy, in our smallness, you would make your name great. That in our finite capacity, you would multiply the seed to an infinite return, Lord. That the fruit that comes from this church, from these saints, Lord, over the decades that lie ahead, may it be magnificent for your glory, Lord God. May you make these lives fruitful, Lord. I pray your blessing on each and every saint here, Lord. That you would multiply us into our communities, into our workplaces, into our families for your glory, Lord. May your name be lifted up in this city, in this nation, and to the ends of the earth, Jesus. Amen. Let's worship you.